You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. You're a cop. What are you doing here? What happened 30 years back? I was long gone by then. I'd scramble the records, cover my tracks. Why? Because that was the plan. Because we were being hunted. Because sometimes to love someone, you gotta be a stranger. The strangers. Welcome everybody to the 602 Club, Trek FM's general geek show. I am just one of your replicants tonight, Matthew Rushing, and uh, I'm really excited to be here to talk about some more Blade Runner as we finally reach the year 2049. And with me... Future replicant, Alice Baker. Yes. Yeah, I'm the leader of the rebellion. That's, oh, I knew I had seen you somewhere. Right, so, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, goodness. And you're looking good for it being 2049, too. Thanks, so. thanks. I yeah. appreciate that. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, when we can get all our parts replaced, it's fantastic, right? You know, right. so, oh, who needs plastic surgery when you can just get a whole new face, so... Uh, <laughs> I am going to need that soon uh, myself. But uh, uh, with us as well is as uh, uh, future replicant uh, Mike Schindler. Mike, it is good to have you back here in the Six Hundred Two Club. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'm really excited to dive into this one. Um, you know, I I don't know if uh, anybody expected to be getting uh, a sequel to Blade Runner. 35 years later, but we have, and so we're going to talk about as much of it as possible. This is a three-hour epic art film, so I don't know how much <laughs> we'll get in. We're going to try our best. Uh, you can hit us up uh, on social media. We'd love to hear from you about what you thought. Uh, go over to Twitter at Trek.fm. Uh, we're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek.fm. You can find every single show that we're doing here on the network at iTunes.com slash Trek.fm. We have so many great shows here on, on the network, so check them out. While you're there, uh, hit us up with a star rating review for the 602 Club. Help more people find the show. Uh, that's that's really what those do, and so uh, you hitting a star rating and review, a written review, really do make people, when they're searching for podcasts, find us. So, uh, And you can find us online at trek.fm. We've got our listeners-only discussion group. That's uh, the Babel Conference. If you're over on Facebook, you can type Babel into the search field you'll find the group. Uh, or uh, if you're on the website at trek.fm and you're on one of our show pages, just hit discussion and that'll let you in. So I am very excited to dive into this one and I was trying to figure out how to tackle it. And I figured let's just let's just hit it straight on. Um, and I wanted to talk with you guys about continuing Blade Runner because I was very interested going into this one to see how they would do this. Like what would be the story? So, uh, with you guys, I just kind of wanted to talk about what you thought about this one's plot and its connections to 
the original Blade Runner and, and how do you think it did? Um, Alice, what what coming out of the film, what were your thoughts about where they had taken this story? Well, that is not what I was thinking about when I came out of this film. Uh, but, <laughs> um, I, you know, going into it, I think our conversation, the three of us, uh, our conversation um, last week discussing it was really kind of on my mind going into the film. Um, so the first thing that stood out to me is there will be no ambiguity in this film. Boy, they're going to spell it out for you <laughs> crystal clear. So there's no mistaking what's going on and who's a replicant and who's not and all that jazz. Uh, and uh, for me, I don't know uh, if the film was better for it for me, if that makes sense. Uh, I enjoyed the uh, ambiguity uh, that was in the first film, or at least as I understood it to be ambiguous. Uh, and I don't, I don't feel like this film had that. So although it tackled some big questions and I thought it put forth some interesting ideas, uh, I didn't... It didn't have the same punch that the first film did for me. I thought it was interesting how, um, you know, they have to justify Harrison Ford's age somehow, right? He's the replicant that ages looking like a human. So tying that back to the, what I think I would consider to be the, the main uh, theme of the film, which is birth, uh, and the the fact that a replicant can age like a human sort of ties into the fact that Harrison Ford now looks as a replicant, as an old man. So, so I thought that was an interesting uh, tie-in there. Um, from there, I, you know, my, my thoughts are varied. How about, how about you, Mike? Where, what were your first impressions? Well, you know, it's interesting because, like, I guess after our conversation last week, you know, I started thinking about you know, whether or not it is clear that Deckard is a replicant in the first one, you know, you, you guys had me kind of like doubting whether or not that was ambiguous, you know, when I, I when I never thought that it was. And going into this one, I'm like, well, here's where they're going to spell it out. And to me, they never actually really did flat out say it any more so than, than the first one. You know, I mean, there's certainly clues and things which I think indicate that, yes, clearly he is a replicant, but I almost felt like in some ways they were like, we're still not going to just flat out say it here. You know, we're still going to leave it so that you might not know, but I don't know. I mean, th there were things which definitely to me signal that he was. Um, so that, that was, was, I guess, I, I don't know. I had almost the opposite reaction in <laughs> terms of that. I, I do agree that with everything else, it was a lot less ambiguous. You know, I think maybe if they would have kept, uh, the origin of of Ryan Gosling's character a bit more ambiguous that might have been more effective but uh, and and they could have i think fairly easily but yeah no i definitely see what you're saying in terms of that so yeah well, I, I like what uh it's funny we already have two different sides and i think that's um, awesome because i'll just i was listening to uh Ridley Scott in an interview and uh, I don't know if you heard this, but in the news, he and Harrison Ford got into a shouting match at a restaurant over this issue about whether or not Deckard is a replicant. And he had told Ford that he has to be a replicant in this film. Like, there, like this story doesn't work without him being a replicant. And it was funny because as I watched this this movie specifically... 
the, the thing that I came away with is kind of more what you're saying, Mike. I didn't feel like they straight up told you yes or no. I felt like they left it to your imagination. He can be a replicant, yes, or maybe he is human, and life found a way, Jurassic Park style, you know, for, for them to, for replicant and human to create something new, you know, like... I, to me, that actually seemed like a much more interesting plot line than them just saying uh, two replicants had reproduced, you know? like, And so I felt like that there being this ambiguity to me throughout this film, if he is a replicant, made the, the plot line much more interesting because I felt like we still don't know, but that's actually what makes this kind of cool. I mean, let me just clarify that I don't think that it is that ambiguous in either movie. I mean, I think it's very clear in the first movie that they were intending to make him a replicant. And I think it's very clear in this movie that they were intending to make him a replicant. I guess more than anything, I was just shocked that they didn't flat out say it, you know. But as far as that argument that that, uh, Harrison Ford and and Ridley Scott had, I I heard about that too. And I think my, my favorite reaction to it, which I saw on Twitter, was someone who said, um... Did either of them bother asking the writer? Yeah, <laughs> because they they probably could answer the question flat out right there. But um, yeah, you know that's how these things go. It's Hollywood. So one of the things that that interested me was the way in which this story weaves replicants back into everyday life. Um, I was actually kind of shocked to see the fact that um, replicants have become something that that. Uh, have become an everyday occurrence in our world because of this Wallace Corporation who's taken over for the Terrell Corporation, which went under because of everything that happened. And that's all connected with something that is connected with Deckard and Rachel creating a, a, the main story point, creating a blackout that happens, which is their way of covering the fact that they're trying to hide their child. Um, And this also causes the Terrell Corporation to go under and then this genius Wallace to come onto the scene and create replicants who are only allowed to follow orders. They're, they're, They're created to follow any order that they're given by their superior. Um, And so I thought that was an interesting way to take this, like to find a way to reel back the clock on the replicants and basically kind of make the dumbed down version model that, you know, you has to obey and therefore you have that workforce that you need. Um, I thought that was a really interesting thing for them to work into the plot here. Sure. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I think that it, it is kind of interesting to sort of, you know, see how the world has changed in the time between the two movies. Uh, and in some ways, I think it's it's interesting. In some ways, I think it's kind of just like substituting something which is basically the same exact thing for the thing that was there before. But I think for the most part, they did a good job of, you know, showing the... Right, because in the, in the opening sequence, in the opening text, we don't have a voiceover, right? We have text. I could swear I read... And, and one of you uh, fast internet folks could probably find it very quickly, um, that it does kind of say straight out that, you know, Blade Runners had been created. 
don't don't they? And then then they say that then Wallace comes along and they create subservient Blade Runners. I could I could swear that's in the text, but I mean I can see uh, you know the progression there of if. Tyrell has been experimenting with more human than human, uh, which does get called out in the script. Um, and people have become frightened of that, uh, that they would take away that more human than human piece and have them function like, uh, but, but be less human-like in terms of that quote-unquote free will aspect of it. Um, so that all... Uh, you know, fell in line. Uh, I'm certainly with you, Mike, and I don't know that it necessarily makes for a more interesting film. Um, you know, it's just so different. You know, I, when Blade Runner came out, at least for me, and I, I, I realized that I am fighting a little bit of a nostalgia problem here. Um, it, it felt new. It felt fresh. It felt different. It felt, wow, these are some big issues that we're discussing that I personally haven't seen discussed in this way before. Now, in 2017, with this film coming out, these ideas and these concepts don't feel fresh and new anymore. Um, we've had Battlestar Galactica. We've had, you know, other films that discuss um, robots and whether or not they should be human-like or not. So the concepts that are put forth in the film don't feel fresh anymore for me. So then I was, I was trapped in... Gosh, men's attitude towards women certainly haven't progressed by 2049. And, um, you know, what is so fresh and new about this storyline? It's beautiful. I loved the soundtrack again. But I was really struggling with feeling that same sense of awe, I guess. And maybe that's unfair. Because, again, like I said, I'm fighting that nostalgia problem. <laughs> well, I think that... I mean, I see what you're saying for sure. And, you know, obviously, like you're saying, there are a lot of things which have dealt with, with this material since Blade Runner came out. And I think a lot of that is due to Blade Runner and, you know, taking it further just because, you know, Blade Runner starts a conversation and other things like Battlestar Galactica and, and stuff like that continue it. And I definitely was thinking about BSG a lot while watching this, you know, and the idea of, you know, replicant procreation and everything definitely you know all of that stuff came into play and you know if i'm going to be completely honest i think that you know bsg handled it uh, a lot better than this did but where i will give this movie credit is that it's not like a blade runner greatest hits album you know it's not saying like that worked in the first one Let's do it again. Mm. Like, I really do feel like it is trying to take the ideas that were established in the first one and build on them. And the problem that, you know, it runs into, which, which you're referencing, Alice, is the fact that since it has been 35 years, other people have had that conversation already. You know, other people have already done that work. But I think that it's, it's effective in doing what it's trying to do. And I think that it really does capture the spirit of the original without uh, mimicking it in, mm. in really any way. I don't know. Yeah, I want to, I, I really want to agree with you, Mike. I, I think that that's something that I felt like in this movie. Um, I'll compare it to a, a less good franchise just as, because I think it does kind of the same, it does some interesting things 
similarly, but I think this does it exponentially better. So don't think that I'm comparing these two. Uh, it's just kind of like, uh, so Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, to me, Jurassic World is a exposition on taking the themes from Jurassic Park and putting them forward 20 years and seeing where we are with that. I think that this Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 does the same thing um, and that it is an extrapolation on everything that we got in Blade Runner uh, but where are we now has has it really changed you know have we ha, would it and does it get better and I think that you know one of the things that this movie did I felt like really well was show that humanity still has this same problem where we're trying to kind of control things in a way that maybe we shouldn't be. Um, and continually, at, and I mean, gosh, specifically Wallace talking about the whole idea that every society has been built on the back of slaves um, and us just being okay with that. Like, this whole movie, like, we're completely, humanity seems completely fine with this idea. Um, not only just slaves as in replicants of things that we build, but, I mean, people are trading in child labor and nobody seems to care here on, at least in this earth, because it seems like all the other people are gone. You know, if you really want to live it up, you're in one of the colonies, you know. Um, but we never see that. All we're seeing is earth, and what we see on earth is that people just continually taking advantage of each other in really awful ways and treating each other pretty horribly. Um, and it's, it's not a pretty world. Like, you know, this is not a place that I don't think this is a future that anybody wants to live in. Um, but it's a, I think you're absolutely Mike, Mike, this is not something where they're just like, well, let's just do Blade Runner, but we'll make it cooler this time. It, I, I felt like this was definitely a perfect spiritual successor and successor to the first movie. In the same way, and I'll reference a couple other another franchises, in the same way that uh, Godfather Two is the perfect sequel to The Godfather, like that's how this feels to me when I was watching this. I was just kind of blown away by what they're doing and how they're moving the story forward uh, in a way that I wasn't totally expecting, and so I found this to be an exhaustive three hours, but it was because this movie has got so much going on and there are so many themes that are running through it and there's just all this interweeding stuff and there wasn't almost enough time to sometimes catch my breath. <laughs> like, you know, think about what's going on and clear it and then move to the next scene. Like, it doesn't give you that. Like, this is a movie that I feel like I just, I need to see over and over and over again so that I can actually truly appreciate it because this isn't popcorn, you know, cinema. This is like pure unadulterated cinema. This isn't this is art. This is an art form. Does does that make sense at all to either of you? I think what you're uh saying sure makes sense to me. I don't know that I feel the same way about it. You know, I for one, I, you know, I personally would rather have a voiceover 
than having a filmmaker who makes the choice to show me visually the exact same shots that comprised his foreshadowing earlier in the film just to make sure I got it. Let's, you know, let's shave a good five, ten minutes off this two-hour and 43-minute behemoth and trust that I'm tracking. Or go back to the voiceover and just give it to me while the movie's moving forward so it doesn't take so damn long. Pet peeve of mine. I don't like it when filmmakers do that. Um, and I don't, I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I do think, I mean, I should be, I will focus on what I did like about the film. It, its pacing is slow, but not slow. So I, I didn't feel like it was a throwaway action movie. On the other hand, it wasn't, you know, the seventh seal. Um, so it had a, a nice pacing in it. Uh, but I also didn't particularly enjoy um, that they basically set it up for another sequel, whereas the first film is very much, you know, contained within itself, and I liked it like that. Here it feels like a very much like a, you know, a, the the Hollywood machine setting themselves up to be able to churn out, you know, Blade Runner twenty fifty two and Blade Runner twenty seventy five, whatever the case may be, and for me that weakened the power of the ending. Yeah, see, I, I definitely had the opposite reaction in terms of that. You know, as as the movie was ending and as I was coming out of it, I mean, one of the things which I, you know, said was like, I really love how they weren't setting up a sequel. Oh, my God. I mean, like, certainly, certainly there's room for a sequel, just like there'd be room for a sequel at the end of the first movie. But I really feel like, you know, just like with the first one, they're like, we're going to tell a story. And then that's going to be it. And now 35 years later, they're like, we could expand on that <laughs> and make it into something cool. And they tell that story, but then that's it. I mean, the fact that, I mean, I don't know how spoilery we're going to get. We've already ruined oh, like, yeah, the entire we're, movie. Geez, right? Whatever right. you want to say, You know, the fact that they kill Move Ryan free! Gosling, right? <laughs> I mean, like, I, I really did feel like... I mean, this was a satisfying ending, and where there is room to expand on it, I didn't feel like they were holding back. I really feel like it was the you know you always hear about like Christopher Nolan, you know, saying like with the uh, you know the the Batman movies, like I'm not gonna hold something back for the sequel if it's a good enough idea and it belongs in this movie, it's gonna be in this movie, and then we're gonna have to come up with something else, which is better or you know also self-contained for a sequel and i really feel like that's what they did here i was about to sneeze okay whatever i must be a replicant <laughs> no i i actually want to agree with you mike because um you know this year we uh i i talked to with uh brandon shimatola here on the network about the planet of the apes films the newer ones and one of the strengths and hallmarks of those films is that they put everything on the table uh, and they never just assume that they're going to do a sequel uh, and you don't come away with any of those movies feeling like, oh gosh, I got to have the sequel now. You know, it, it it's they they just put all their cards on the table, and if they're going to tell another story, it like you said, like Nolan, you're just going to have to one up yourself. You're going to have to write yourself out of any corners that you put yourself in, but because you did everything you wanted to do, and I I do kind of feel like this movie, yes, there could honestly I. Alice, I never even thought about a sequel um, coming wow. out of this. Uh, I that because that wasn't where my headspace was. 
I felt like they told this section here as a complete story. And of, of course, now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, you could totally take this somewhere else and go with the whole, you know, replicant liberation front, right? Um, but you don't have to, you know? Um, and you never have to touch this again if you never wanted to. And I still would feel just as complete as if that never happened. And so, and I guess that's a good thing because absolutely. given the box office, we yeah. ain't getting a sequel yes. for another 35 years. No, but I mean, Alice, I guess here's a question which I have, just a hypothetical. Sure. Um, if the first movie were to be made today in the world of sequels or whatever, given the ending that it has, would you be like, oh, they're totally setting it up for a sequel? Because I think I would have that reaction to the first one. Ooh, that's hard to that's hard to do on the spot. I'm trying to think. We we've got yeah them going on right in the like, version going them going off in the car, right? Yes, right. Sure, you could you could have the 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 Deckard and Rachel Love story movie after that. Absolutely, sure. Or in the director's cut, them you know hurrying off into the elevator and the doors closing behind them and being on the run. It's so I mean, interesting that you ask me that, Mike, because in my head. The movie ends with Batty with Roy and Batty, and I like the rest yeah. of it. I've sort of erased from my mind in the storyline. So you're absolutely right. Um, it could go to a to a love story with with the two of them, and I just never, I just never, I guess because I never wanted that. That romance is icky to me, so I, I just erased it from my my thought process. I, mean, I don't. I, I maybe maybe it's because you know I, I've definitely seen the director's cut more often, but. I don't really think of it as a love story so much of it as, you know, like the fugitive, but with robots, you know, ah. it's like they're on the run, you know, and, and now they're, they're going to need to be undercover and, you know, right, right. then some, someone's looking for them and whatever. Yeah. Right. It, it's funny because I didn't think of it as a love story until this film, honestly, like there. Well, it's, it's not a very this... loving story, so right. <laughs> I well, can see why you wouldn't consider right. it a love story. <laughs> but, um. What I'm saying is is that it, it doesn't really start off like a love story, but it seems like it turned into one. Like, And we don't get to see that part, but at least by what we get from this movie, it definitely seems as though they fell into an actual relationship. Like they fell in love with each other, they have a child, and then they do whatever they can to protect it. Like they, they you know, they upend the entire world just so that they can save their child. It seems like they they have some serious love there. Um and I almost kind of wish like that I knew that story with them because I feel like that would have been really interesting. But aside from not actually seeing it, I felt like the movie did a good job of showing me that that had happened even though I didn't see it. Does that make sense? Sure. So and that's not, I mean I I wanted to ask you guys so did you buy did you buy that like in this movie because that is kind of the the spine of this story uh and you slowly find that out over but that Rachel and Deckard are the kind of the linchpin of this whole thing uh at the end like their actions that they took them running away them falling in love them having a kid, them uh, turning the world upside down with a blackout. I mean, it. they're the ones who kind of created where we are now. 
I mean, I I buy it in the context of this movie, but I mean, surely when you see Harrison Ford there talking about, you know, his his love for Rachel and, and then, you know, all the scenes after that, the fact that, you know, she's his Achilles heel in a lot of ways and everything. And, you know, I I couldn't help but think back to the start of their relationship in the first one and be like, it's weird how it got to that point from where it started. But okay, I mean, I guess this is a movie. Let's just <laughs> roll with it, you know? Well, and Wallace puts <laughs> forth that Tyrell designed it, right? I mean, Wallace yeah. p- puts forth that he designed uh, Deckard and Rachel to get together. Um, Which I, I think is really kind of important um, as far as retcon is concerned and everything, especially given this story, because, you know, the first one, it's kind of, strange where it's like okay she's super advanced and at that point we don't know that you know Deckard is not unique and it's like okay he's you know been around for a while too and you know what are the odds of these two weird random replicants who are unique in their own well unique ways you know getting together or whatever and then when you find out like oh they're responsible for this you know kid existing and everything it's like well that's convenient but then explaining like hey did you ever think that maybe this was all set up by you know Terrell from the beginning that sort of like clicked and made all of those you know stretches in in my mind like work a lot a lot better than they they had in the past which I thought was kind of a cool a cool little retcon there well and it made an interesting question because um even if that is the case does that still mean that they didn't actually fall in love and that they didn't actually love their child enough to do what they do? Like, in the end, uh, kind of in a, in a interstellar kind of way, is love quantifiable enough in that sense? Or is, does it defy all logic in the end with what happens? Well, in my opinion, a lot's got to happen between what goes on in the first film to, to what you're describing. Because what goes on in the first film is is Harrison Ford slamming her up against the wall and commanding her to love him and telling her to ask him to kiss him. She never says, I love you or I want you, unless he asks her to tell him those words. So it's it's hard for me anyway, from my perspective, to have any sense that she's truly of her own free will in love with him uh, at the end of the Blade Runner movie. Now, again, what happens between, you know, in the intervening years to perhaps change that, I don't know. Um, You know, if she, if they overcome some programming that Tyrell gave them to fall in love, I don't know. But I guess that poses an interesting new question as to what is love and what does that mean? To me, it almost seems like a mirrored with Kay and Joy. Is that how you say her name? J-O-I, Joy. Um, she brings Joy. The fact that, you know, she's an artificial, completely artificial uh, holographic life form. Um, you know, it, is she really in love with Kay? Or is it just her programming and all of that? And I feel like that part is mirroring the story and almost uh, it seemed like to me the way that that relationship plays out is the way that we're supposed to I think picture that Harrison Ford and Sean Young's relationship played out which is that 
they did kind of transcend programming to find what we would consider true love, which, and the reason I say that is because Joy is willing to sacrifice her life to go with Kay, even if she knows that it means it might end. And it's very clear from this film that, you know, um, Rachel and Deckard are very much willing to sacrifice their own lives to protect each other and their child. And if you ask me, that's what love, truest form of love is. So there is a transcendence, I think. How that happened, I think, would be very interesting. Like you said, Rachel, their relationship starts out very strange, right? It's, it's not normal. Um, I would. This is not first date tips, guys. Or any date tips. Yeah, you know, so good save uh, there. Good save. Any date tips. Um, (laughs) But you know, we also have thirty-one years to which um, we're not privy to of their lives, and so um, that's where I felt like the relationship between Kay and Joy kind of gives us an insight of what you know Rachel and Deckard actually ended up having in the end. so I just, I found that kind of fascinating the way that they did that. Well, the relationship between Kay and Joy is interesting too because it's a lot more ambiguous in terms of whether or not you know Joy is sentient, whether or not it is an actual relationship, right. yeah. or it's just something which he's essentially pretending or imagining, and or 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 even is you know sort of convinced of, but is not really there. And I think that they do a pretty good job of of really sort of, you know, walking that line and bringing the sentience of joy into doubt in a lot of ways. Well, and for me, again, for me, how I interpreted that um, in the in the she's not sentient is that Wallace has created these pleasure holograms or these companion holograms to basically be what the person wants to hear. So Kay is is getting what he wants out of a relationship and they're programmed to be that way. And for me, the the nail on the head for that one was again when he, then he, we see the, the giant naked joy and she you hear him hear the advertisement use Joe as the name. Um, and it's basically, she says that she's like, Oh, I'll be anything you want me to be. I'll, you know, whatever she says, whatever the script line is. Um, so that's how I interpreted it was that it was, a uh, uh, you know, you know, blow up doll 5.0. I don't know, whatever. Well, and that's something that I think that's where there is a bit of difference because it. Uh, to me, again, it truly does seem like there is something different about Rachel and um, Deckard, especially in the scene where Wallace, you know, is showing him. He'll he's like, "I'll give you another Rachel," and you know, for all intents and purposes, she's pretty much the same, right? But he says she had green eyes. Like he knows the difference. she's not the same. It's not his Rachel. Um, And that if it was just something that was interchangeable, he wouldn't be willing to put his life on the line like that. Um, And I thought, I just found that fascinating to me that 
in, in the same way with Star Trek, you know, you ask those questions about data and sentience and, and then you come down to something like, could he really love and all that stuff? Um, it, the whole movie kind of seems to be at this point, again, very much in a Jurassic Park way that, well, I guess artificial life finds a way <laughs> because Deckard and Rachel have a child. That and is birthed. Exactly. That is birthed. That is they they give birth to a child um, that would create an entirely new race of beings, basically, uh, which is to me, again, that's kind of fa- a, a fascinating question um, in much the same way Jurassic Park, again, was asking those questions about can you control life, you know, Um and I just I think that was really interesting to see them play with in this movie, um, but use it with near human or human like or human ish. I don't even know what we call them, you know, because like they're not human; they're still artificial. But human ish, uh, they're. I mean, for all intents and purposes, they're they're pretty human. <laughs> yeah. No, I. Yeah. I, I I hear you. I hear you. Yeah, I just keep on thinking about how similar it is, really, to what was done on Battlestar Galactica, and and you know, I think that you know, given the fact that it was a TV show and had a lot more time to sort of delve into these issues and see different you know variations on them and everything, it really was sort of able to tackle the subject much more thoroughly. Right. Um, but and at yeah. least that series about birth had a few more uh, women in it. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Let's have it. Let's have a film about giving birth, that, which mostly has men in it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, this is something that I was really interested in too, because this kind of going back to the relationship between Kay and Joy, um, but just kind of what we see on Earth as it is in 2049. Like everything is just so artificial. There, there's not a there's not a lot real in this world. Like everybody kind of lives in an artificial world. Um, we you know we don't seem to have much growing uh, anymore uh, in this area of the world. Um, or it, it seems like maybe on Earth at all, we don't have a, a, a lot of people that seem to be connected in relationship with one another. Everybody's involved with all of these artificial relationships with their joy model or you know i mean we see a um a replicant house of ill repute you know um we see uh, vending machines for food that nothing is like very real in the world anymore and people don't seem to even treat people like people anymore again i was fascinating that this movie seems to have artificial these replicants acting more like humans than actual human beings. That's just fascinating to me. I guess it's, I love, I, you know, you know, Matt, that I love your optimism and your, your pop, your positivity, but I mean, one could certainly posit that they've, you know, they've taken the condition of the world as it is today. I mean, people often talk about how if you go into areas of a, of a city that uh, don't have a high socioeconomic class, it's, it's hard to find any sort of place to grow food or even have a grocery store that sells fresh produce, um, which is, which is mimicking this. Um, 
you know, so in terms of mimicking the condition of the world, um, I, I can't, you know, I, I don't know what to say to that. I think that the, the film is trying to sort of point out humanity's failings by having the non-human, the human-ish characters in the movie, for the most part, be more human. I mean, we do have the example of Wallace, you know, slitting open the belly of one of his newly experimented replicants in hopes that it can give birth, but it can't, so it slices its belly open. Although, I, to tell you honestly, that's a good question. What is Wallace? Is Wallace a human? Is Wallace an augmented human? Is How how human-ish is Wallace? Uh, I mean, as far as we know, he's human. He's just blind. He's just so. augmented, so he has his, his little switch-out jack right. I, where he can yeah. have eyes of various so. kinds or whatever. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, you know, and then we have the femme fatale who's, you know, basically a killing machine. And I mean, we do certainly have examples of replicants or human-ish people behaving badly also. But I agree with you 100% that it does feel like the film is taking the opportunity to say, hey, humanity, you kind of suck. Can we can we uh, treat each other better, please? Well, and I mean, uh, on top of that, I mean, just the idea of like Kay and Joy, you know, uh, it's a fake relationship, like you were saying. Like in the end, is she really beyond the programming, or is it just being able to hear what you want to hear? And I'm going to be really honest, I just think that's kind of a knock against like this idea of the porn culture, of like the you don't want real, you just want to get what you want, and you don't want to have to do any work for it. You know, there's nothing K has to do to to get joy to be nice to him, right? And he could tell her to do whatever he wants to do her to do and she'd do it. Um in the same way he'll do the same thing for his boss, you know, uh Yes, who does who does that's how I read that scene too that she's on the verge of ordering him to have sex with her but then in yes. the end she she walks out. And then out. she doesn't. Yes, um, right. And then and, she walks and, away. And, yeah. and 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 maybe it's because she affords him more humanity than he even knows that. You know what I'm saying? Like she sees him as more than just a thing to be played with. I don't know. I don't I guess I didn't really get that vibe. I mean, I guess I could see that like in the larger scale, but as far as like what they were doing with Kay, I mean, I guess I I saw that more in terms of I mean, if we're going with like a real world analogy, like maybe someone who's lonely and trying to find, you know, a relationship with some sort of like abstract, you know, uh person online you know and maybe sort of like equating you know uh, uh, uh you know a friendly chat with someone into something more you know that sort of idea right, right. you know like the sort of like social media relationships yeah. you know I, I guess that's kind of the vibe that i was getting from right. that I, more than anything and i think you're absolutely right i, I think that's uh i took it to kind of like the extreme version but I think you're ap- you're absolutely right in calling out the idea of like just living your life kind of in this nebulous social media realm where you can kind of be and interact with whoever you want and you can create a world in which is nothing but an echo chamber and you can hear just what you want to hear um, but, without but anything getting in the way of that. I mean, like, I also don't think that, like... Kay is doing that by choice. You know, I don't think he's like, you know, 
I could be out socializing and hanging out at the <laughs> replicant bar or whatever, but instead I'm just going to go for this. And, you know, I think it's, it's almost like a form of control on the part of, you know, hmm. That's a good Wallace point. or whoever, you know, where they're saying like, we're going to give you everything you need. Look, we'll mm-hmm. even give you this relationship, you know? Right. And he's just kind of like, they're like, I guess this is reality. I guess this is a relationship. I don't know. Because it's really the only thing which I've dealt with ever, you know, like that sort of thing. Right. Uh, well, and it, it is interesting that, you know, as for the replicants, that you would give them this longing for belonging that rhymed. Um, and this this desire to to have connection, you know, in the same way that we as humans have that same desire, like that that is something that's been passed on to our creation, uh, which is kind of fascinating to me that. Um, humanity can't imagine a life in total isolation and therefore what we create as an artificial being cannot imagine life that way either. They long for some kind of connection, uh, whether it's with, you know, another artificial being like, you know, a hologram or with something more. Um, I think that's, that's really interesting. Okay, so I wanted to ask you, uh, thinking through... We're just kind of walking through parts of the movie, and I'm sure we'll miss things, but uh, one of the things I found fascinating was the way in which uh, Lieutenant Jossie, Joshie, anyway, Robin Wright's character, uh, the police chief, is basically working against uh, Wallace. And I found that kind of fascinating that there is a human being that realizes that if replicants can actually procreate it may lead to the eventual downfall and ruin of humanity altogether and i wish that that that's the one thing i wish in the movie had been played out just a little bit more that there had been more than one person kind of standing in her you know uh william's way i was wallace's way excuse me yeah i i I was too distracted when she was talking about the wall because i just wanted to shout out you can't handle the truth um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, she's a, she's a swath of a character, right? I mean, she's, you know, she's sort of swathed on the page. And I, I do think there's some, some interest there because she, you do see her struggle with that treating Kay as a, as a thing, as you put it, uh, Matt, or affording him some, uh, more humanity as it gets called. I mean, she gives him dignity because she lets him go. She does, right? Which parallels, um, oh my God, now I can't remember his name. Gaff. Gaff, thank you so much. Gaff's character, right, who lets Decker go as well. So, yeah, I mean, I'm with you. They could have, I think they could have, I would have loved to have seen more of her than the femme fidale, that's for sure. So, um, yeah, I I think they could have played that out a little bit better. And I don't, I just don't think I was in that depth with you in that moment, Matt, so... I would have to, I really do actually want to go see this film again now that I know what I'm getting from the get-go, um, because I think I can go in with uh, a different uh, perspective and a fresher attitude uh, and perhaps enjoy the film a little bit more the second time around and look for things like what you're talking about. No, I think um, that is, I, I honestly, I, I've had that experience on Alice um, with having to do that, you know, it, maybe go to a movie a second time or watch a film a second time, uh, and having that knowledge of what's coming, you know, um, actually helps 
uh, and has helped many a times in, in movies, especially with it being something that I've been really looking forward to. That first time, like, I don't know what to make of this, you know, and a lot of times I find that the second time. Uh, as, uh, you know, Frank Sinatra would say, love is lovelier the second time around. <laughs> so, um, which we get. We get Frank Sinatra in this movie, which is fantastic. Um, I could have done less with all of that. I just so think this film could have been shorter. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Just I'm not so going to agree with you whatsoever on that oh. one. Um, I don't oh. have a problem with the length. Uh, whatsoever. I did want to ask you guys, uh, just kind of talking through uh, the actors that we get in the film with the cast um, and what you thought of them, uh, you know, because Ryan Gosling, Harrison Ford, I mean, we have uh, Robin Wright, Mackenzie Davis, Dave Bautista, Jared Leto. You've got some great people in here. I just wondered what you thought of the cast and and how they did in their roles. Uh, Yeah, for the most part, I thought they were good. I thought that Gosling was, uh, you know, solid as per usual. He seems to pick pretty good movies most of the time, so that that was cool. Um, it was definitely cool to see Harrison Ford again, and uh, I think that uh, he did a, a pretty good job sort of extending that, that character. Um, kind of over Jared Leto, I know we're supposed to separate the art from the artist, but uh, every time I see him in a movie, I'm just like, really? We have to put up with this now? Um, but... Uh, you know, whatever he was fine, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I thought that that uh, everyone was was pretty solid. I it, I really enjoyed Ryan Gosling's performance. Uh, that was that was one thing that I did think about after the film that wasn't more neutral, I guess I should say. Um, I, I really enjoyed uh, his performance, and I think he had a hard job to do with really just playing it so kind of mostly flat most of the film uh, and then having those few outbreaks of, of sort of big emotion. Uh, and I, I think it's, uh, I don't know because I'm not an actor, but in my mind, if I were an actor, I would think that it would be hard to play something very neutral and not have it seem like you're not acting, if that makes sense. So I actually thought Ryan Gosling did a, a really, really great job. I've never been a huge Harrison Ford fan, uh, but I thought he had a few moments where I was was with him in believability and sharing some of his emotion, uh, but they sort of were few and far between. Uh, I'm not a Jared Leto hater. Uh, I thought he also gave you know a fine creepy-ass performance, which is probably what they were going for. Um, the femme fatale was very one note, so I wasn't, uh, you know, whatever. She was kind of a throwaway character for me. Um, you know, uh, I, you know, Joy's, I, you know, again, what Joy had to do in the film, I think was a little bit challenging. I think the actress did a a perfectly, uh, acceptable job at it. Uh, I'm trying to think who else, Robin Wright. Yeah. Uh, Batista. Sean Young. Hey. Yay. <laughs> um, spoilers upon spoilers. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was I was actually surprised to see her. You know, me too. But, uh, yeah. but pleasantly, I, I was surprised. shocked when they pulled that off. I was like, oh, wow! It's like the Tarkin appearance. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there weren't there weren't any crappy acting performances in my mind, um, but Ryan was the the big standout for me. I mean, I'm going to agree with you. I, I think Ryan, if he sucks in this movie, this movie 
is just awful. You know, there's no way this movie works if he's not good. And I thought um, the thing that Ryan Gosling brings is he brings a little Ryan Gosling-ness to things. Uh, and I think he did it perfectly in this film. Like there, like you said, Alice, there those moments where that kind of comes to the service. Uh, and he has that charisma on screen. And I think that really helped um, in a way that, you know, Harrison Ford's Deckard is very flat throughout the entire, you know, uh, film of the original. Uh, Gosling's not that way, but he's not meant to be that way because he's not the same kind of replicant or maybe replicant, um, at least in Harrison Ford's, you know, he's a replicant, whatever. (laughs) So uh, I I felt like he was fantastic. Honestly, though, I'm going to disagree. I think Harrison Ford was actually really good in this movie. Um, I was very surprised to see him play it so well, and I really enjoyed his performance. Um, his older Harrison Ford gruffiness really played perfect for this, um, but there were moments when I kind of forgot that he was Harrison Ford, and it was just that character on screen. Uh, that oh, was God, that. no, that never happened for me. Um, I wish. I, you know, I don't have a problem with Jared Leto. He is what he is, but he also is a pretty fantastic actor. And knowing what he went through for this role, um, I think he played it to perfection. There's, I mean, he he does what he needs to do for the role. And like you said, he comes off creepy as sin. uh, And that's exactly what you want. Um, The the person who surprised me the most was Dave Bautista. He was awesome in that scene. I really liked his... Everything about him in that movie. Uh, and and um, I am constantly surprised to see him do things so well. Like, he's just, a, he's a good actor, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think after Guardians of the Galaxy, I'm not really surprised well, I'm, by, I, by I, Batista I mean, being Yeah, so but good. I mean, the fact that he, you know, he can do something like Spectre, he can do something like Guardians, and now he does something like this, you know, I just... He's got good range, and he's just—he really is. He's a good actor, and so I really liked him in this role. Um, I think Robin Wright was was great for what she needed to do in her role, and especially the girl who played Joy was—I um, can't imagine how tough that would have been to film. Um, just trying to get all, the, yeah, technically and all, yeah. the, and and still come off is something believable. I I think that that's that's a good performance. Um, you know, and the henchman love, you know, she is what she is. She's not meant to be more because she is a replicant who's doing what she's told. So she doesn't have a mind of her own. Um, and I think there are hints you know, where she does. Why would she be crying if, you know, I mean, there are definitely moments where she's perhaps on the verge of breaking free of her programming. I don't know. But yes, I, I agree with you. She's break free. <laughs> She she's a one note character for the most part. Did you part. know that he wanted uh, instead of Jared Leto, he wanted Dave Bowie? Yeah, that would have been a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I, I don't um I don't read a lot of the especially if I'm gonna talk about the film with, with you guys or somebody else, I like avoid all backstory, all all of that kind of stuff because I know it'll in some way influence what I'm gonna say. So now that we've talked about it, now I'll go and read all of those interviews and stories and all of that kind of stuff. I don't I do I do the same thing. I don't read anything, but I listen to, to uh just an interview with the director and then Ridley Scott. Ah um, cool. So listening to behind the scenes actual people making the film is different than listening to somebody's review because I don't want to know what other people think. 
not selfishly or uh, you know, egotistically. It's just that I don't want to necessarily be influenced before I have the opportunity to talk through it with you know on the show with people like you. Uh, yeah. So I do want to ask you guys one more thing before we kind of just talk about some uh, design stuff since it's so important in these films. But I wanted to ask you what you thought of the story point of whether or not Kay is their child and if that twist worked at all for you guys or if you saw it a, a mile away. I definitely was suspicious because there's the scene where uh, the woman, the replicant woman who's in his house, picks up the horse and says, oh, this is from a dream. And I'm like, oh, hey, you know. So, um, I mean, I, I didn't necessarily know that it was going to be, you know, the, the the dream maker or whatever who was the, the daughter. But dream I had my... <laughs> But but I had my my suspicions about it being uh, Ryan Gosling for sure. Oh yeah, I think I, I think for the most part they set that up pretty solid in terms of of leading the audience down the path of believing that Kay is in fact uh, the son. I I don't think I was really thinking anything super different until she cries when he tells her the memory, and then I was like, oh okay. I think maybe something else is going on. Um, although there was for a brief moment <laughs> where I thought it was the uh, the the sidekick prostitute replicant who's used in the replicant three-way that I thought yeah. maybe just for a brief second was his sister. And then I was always like, ooh, <laughs> he had replicant sex with his sister. Gross. But I thought, no, that can't, that can't worst, be right. Like, acts, uh, act, like Star Wars, you know, <laughs> thing ever. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I got, I got over that pretty quickly. But that, that was the, the I, I thought they, they did a good job of leading people down that garden path with, you know, appropriate red herrings and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, I, I thought so too. And because I was talking about it with my wife on the way home and I was like, when you think back, you're like, duh, it's not him. Uh, because they make it pretty clear in the scene when he is talking to the Dreamweaver, and that's what I'm going to call her now, and she is crying watching this memory, and the fact that she says this is real. Uh, it's it it's kind of blatant, but at that point, you're so, I think, focused on what it's doing to Ryan Gosling's character, Kay, that you're kind of missing that. And I just, I felt like the movie does a really good job of making you think it's him and being along with him on the ride of hope, him kind of hoping it's him. And then it not being is, is great. I, I really liked that. So, well, lastly, I, w I wanted to ask you guys, obviously design, production, and I think sound design are huge in these movies. And I wanted to see what you guys thought. Does this live up to the Blade Runner level? I mean, is it is it the same as what you kind of expect when you're thinking of Blade Runner when it comes to design, production, and sound, and soundtrack, and all that stuff? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, you know, Roger Deakins, who shot it, you know, he's a master, and, and I think that, you know, people have been talking to him about this ever since, you know, like probably Sicario or whatever. And, you know, whenever someone's like, so, you know, how do you feel, you know, doing this thing? And he's like, I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm not going to try to be Cronenweth. I'm going to be me or whatever. And I think he totally does that. You know, I mean, this movie, yeah, like spiritually, it, it does feel like it's, it's, 
you know, visually, you know, similar to the first one, but it's certainly its own thing. And, and I think it, just like the first one was rather revolutionary in terms of, uh, the technology, you know, uh, from a, from a, you know, photography standpoint, you know, using like, I think it was the first movie to use Xenon light sources and stuff like that, really creating that interesting look. Like this one, I think, does the same thing by, you know, pushing it in terms of, you know, shooting it in HD and, and, and everything and, and really sort of uh, not trying to mimic the look of a 35-year-old movie, but trying to do what that movie did, but today, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, progression of of the of the art form or whatever, so that I mean totally you know stood out to me. I mean same thing with the music. You know I thought the score was amazing, and the sound design was was really cool and you know very loud and and appropriately so and and it it, it kind of uh, kicked my butt. So that was cool. I like that. Okay, that was cool. Um, yeah, for me, if it weren't for Ryan Gosling and the production design uh, all the way around. I wouldn't have liked this film as much as I did. Uh, I think the the visuals are stunning. There are a couple of instances w where I felt like they were trying a little bit too hard to sort of make connections back to the earlier film, which wasn't really necessary. Um, but the color choice uh, is uh, is just w when he goes to Las Vegas in that just saturated yellow orange is just stunning. Um, Wallace's weird meditation meeting room. Uh, I, God, I wish I could have that room in my house. It'd be awesome. Um, it's just stunningly beautiful to, to look at. Um, the costumes for me aren't quite as interesting, uh, but still very, 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 very good. Um, and I agree with you 110% on the sound design. And I love in the end scene, when uh, Ryan is is lying down on the steps and they do the callback to the Vangelis theme is a beautiful moment on film. That whole scene with the music is just gorgeous. Um, so I give it the, a big two thumb, thumbs up in all of those departments. Yeah, my wife, uh, she did not like the sound design. Uh, it was too loud for her. She did not like that. Um, but I felt like it, it, it fit the film and I felt like it was supposed to be an like an auditory punch in many places it's it's meant to be jarring uh and discordant and sometimes uncomfortable because this world should be uncomfortable and i felt like the sound design does such a great job of making you feel like almost on edge you're just never completely comfortable but you shouldn't be in this world it's a world that nobody should want to live in uh and i don't know of a movie that looks better production design wise than this movie this year or maybe in a long time i mean i i can't think of a flaw in this film with the way it looks the way it's designed the way it's shot i mean every scene feels like it's been meticulously planned out and executed to be perfect you know um just shot by shot, scene by scene, frame by frame, everything is, is meant to be art in a lot of ways. I don't know. There's just something completely different about this movie than anything I've seen this year and maybe in a long time. Um, and, and maybe it's just, I feel like this movie just takes the time to do all of that stuff. Um, and it's not afraid to 
the art, you know, uh, film is an art form. Um, I definitely feel like they're taking this seriously in a way and I love it, you know, um, and uh, I don't know. I mean, I wonder if maybe the box office, um, one, it's a 35-year-old movie, and maybe people aren't as familiar with it anymore. Um, but two, I don't know how many people want to sit through a three-hour art film. Um, people don't tend to do that these days. But I I just, I was stunned by all of that. So, um, Alice, uh, let's rate this. W- where do you put... Uh, Blade Runner 2049. Three out of five gross eyeball scans. Nice. Classic. What about you, Mike? Uh, I guess uh, four out of five uh, uh, fake memories. Nicely done, sir. Well done. Well done. <laughs> I really like this movie. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I feel like this movie is the Godfather 2 to Blade Runner's Godfather which Godfather 2 may be a better movie and probably is a better movie than the original Godfather, but you still have to have the original and you can't not have the original for Godfather 2 to make sense. And that's how I feel about these two. Um, I think I probably, and Alice, you'll think I'm ridiculous, but um, I think that I like this movie better than Blade Runner and I enjoyed it more. But both of them together make something really special. And I just, again, I haven't seen a movie be art in a long, long time uh, other than um, this year where, you know, we had Dunkirk, which was not afraid to be art, I think. Uh, You should go see Mother. No, I'm not going (laughs) to go see Mother. Um, it's fun. You'll no, like it. I am not going to go see Mother. I'm sorry. I didn't even like Black Swan. So um, I, I don't really enjoy his films. He's he's not a filmmaker that I enjoy. So, so um, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, he's just not. <laughs> I, I mean, I've I've seen some awesome. of his movies, and he's just not <laughs> a filmmaker I enjoy. So, uh, but this I I really did. Uh, for me, this is um, four and a half out of five joys. So. Um, the other Joy got messed up in her little special, you know, thing, you know, it got crunched, so she's only half a Joy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, wow, this has been a very different episode of the show, because I just, it, and I love how we just kind of flowed through topics and just kind of came from one thing to the next, because this is definitely a movie I feel like I need to see a lot more to, to truly uh, appreciate for what it is and what it's doing, what it's saying, all of those things. If you haven't seen it and somehow you're still listening, I highly encourage you to go see it. Uh, And if you didn't see it, I hope you enjoyed us talking about it. I would really like to hear your thoughts over on the Babel Conference, so make sure you check that out. And uh, Alice, if anybody wants to talk to you about Blade Runner or anything else that's going on with you, um, where can they find you online? Well, as you just mentioned, uh, I do try and pipe in on the Babel Conference for the podcast that I've been involved with. I always find uh, people really put together some really insightful things and talk about things in a really respectful and uh, interesting way. So I'm always happy to join the uh, conversation there. Uh, I uh, probably on the interwebs most easily found on Twitter at ALCBKR and other social medias as well. And Mr. Schindler, where can people find you? 
Uh, you can find me right here on the network doing a show called The Edge and another show called Stage 9. Uh, you can also find me on CommentaryTrackStars.com doing a show called Commentary Trackstars and on uh, TheNerdParty.com doing a show called Great Shot Kid. And this Friday, uh, John Mills and I actually take a look at Blade Runner 2049 in relation to The Force Awakens and talk about the idea of legacy sequels and different approaches to, to that concept and uh, where some may work better than others or or whatever. So definitely check that out. And uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K. Well, I want to say a huge thank you to our associate producers here on the show. Uh, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson through Patreon. And I really appreciate them for being with the show for so long and the network. Uh, this is just a massive network we have so much going on and uh, there's absolutely no way that uh, we as the hosts can do it all on our own and so uh, if you would like to make sure that uh, shows like the 602 club and everything else that we're doing here on the network keep coming to you uh, i really encourage you head over to patreon.com slash trek fm see how you can become part of our team and and i promise you every little bit helps even just a little bit a month um, makes a huge difference on whether or not we can keep the shows coming to you. And, of course, you know, I think if you listen to them, you know they're ad-free. It's great content. It's it's great conversations across Star Trek and beyond with the 602 Club. So, again, go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see what you can do to make sure that it keeps coming to you. Uh, you could find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I'm also on Instagram under the same name. I'm here on the network with Chris Jones on uh, The Orb talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, I'm also over on the Nerd Party Network. Um, I do a show with the aforementioned John Mills, uh, and we're talking about Star Wars on Aggressive Negotiation, so you're going to want to check it out. It's so much fun. Actually, this show is kind of the godfather of that show, so... I'm also talking about Harry Potter with Drea Kaufman on a show called Owl Post as we walk through every single chapter of Harry Potter, one chapter at a time. Uh, we're in the middle of the Prisoner of Azkaban right now, so jump on board. It's a lot of fun. Uh, and last but not least, um, I'm doing a show with my friend Courtney, and that is called Cinema Stories, and we talk about film through the lens of faith. So I hope you will check all of those out, and you can find those wherever you get your podcasts and thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you hear that's how it goes and joe i know you're getting anxious to close and thanks for the cheer i hope you didn't mind my bend in your ear